Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. This podcast of Perspectives Asia with Mr. Ranjit Haskode is presented by the Griffith Asia Institute and the Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art. Good evening, everybody. My name's Professor Andrew O'Neill. I'm the new director of the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all to the first Perspectives Asia seminar for 2010. The Griffith Asia Institute produces innovative interdisciplinary research on key aspects of the political, economic, societal and cultural dimensions of Asia. By promoting knowledge of Australia's changing region and its importance to our future, Griffith Asia Institute seeks to inform and foster academic scholarship, public awareness and considered responsive policymaking. A central part of our mission at Griffith Asia Institute is, is to promote discussion and public debate and engage further with government, industry uh, and community groups to create a more informed, nuanced and sophisticated public debate on Australia's engagement with Asia. Perspectives Asia occupies a special place in achieving these objectives. As a series of public seminars developed and presented by the Griffith Asia Institute and the Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art at the Queensland Art Gallery, Perspectives Asia explores issues of contemporary culture, politics and society in our region. To that end, Perspectives Asia showcases some of the most exciting and stimulating speakers from within our region. And tonight is no exception. It's my pleasure to now invite Mr Russell Storer, who's Curator of Contemporary Asian Art, uh, to introduce our speaker for 2010, our first speaker for 2010, I should say, Mr Ranjit Hoskote. Thanks, Andrew. Good evening, everyone. Um, yes, my name is Russell Storer, and I'm uh, the Curator of Contemporary Asian Art here at the Queensland Art Gallery. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land we meet upon today. I'd like to thank Andrew and the Griffith Asia Institute for their support of the Perspectives Asia program and the Queensland Art Gallery. We're very fortunate this evening to have Ranjit Hoskate as our speaker for the first Perspectives Asia seminar for 2010. Ranjit is a critic, cultural theorist, poet, editor, translator and curator based in Bombay. His poetry has been published widely and has been collected in five books, most recently the two-decade anthology Vanishing Acts in 2006. He's won numerous literary awards and is currently the General Secretary of the Penn All India Centre. Ranjit wrote art criticism and cultural commentary for the Times of India throughout the 1990s and over the following decade was senior editor and cultural critic for The Hindu. He's authored numerous essays and books on modern and contemporary Indian art, including monographs on the artist Pranit Soy, Bharti Kerr and Sudhir Padwadan, and his commentary on Indian art is featured in journals, newspapers and catalogues around the world. As a curator, Ranjit has organised several major exhibitions including a mid-career survey of Atul Dodia in 2001, a 2005 retrospective of Jahangir Sabawa, and the ex exhibition Aparanta, the Confluence of Contemporary Art in Goa in 2007. He was a co-curator of Under Construction, a key survey of contemporary Asian art at the Japan Foundation and Tokyo Opera City in 2002, and of the 7th Gwangju Biennial in Korea in 2008, along with Okuyen Wizor and Hyunjin Kim. It's wonderful that Ranjit and his wife, Nancy Adichania, also a highly respected critic, curator and theorist, could come here to Brisbane following their visit to Adelaide for the festival. And I'd like to acknowledge the Contemporary Arts Centre of South Australia and the Adelaide Festival for bringing Ranjit to Australia for the first time and Griffith University for facilitating this visit to Brisbane. 
The title of Ranjit's presentation this evening is, as you can see, The Scale of Change, A New Atlas for Indian Art. There has, of course, been a growing international focus on Indian contemporary art, particularly in terms of its feverish market in tandem with the country's burgeoning economic might. But the recent financial slowdown and its impact on this market, as Ranjit wrote recently in the Economic Times, has reopened, as he says, a conceptual space in India for discussion of fundamental questions about value rather than price, the social significance of art, attention to education and infrastructure, and the power of aesthetic experience. It's timely for us outside of India too to gain new and deeper insights into Indian art, and I'm sure Ranjit will offer us many this evening. Please join me in welcoming Ranjit Haskate. Thank you so much, Russell. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, it's wonderful to be here and to share some of these thoughts. And I do want to thank the, the Griffith Asia Institute and the Queensland Art Gallery for having uh, given me this opportunity. It's, um, I, ha I have to say, it's quite nervous-making to know that this is the first uh, presentation in the series for this year. Because in some sense, when you start off, uh, you know, open up a set of questions, uh, you also feel the great responsibility of addressing these debates that exercise all of us wherever we may be. And I'm also happy that both in, very much in Australia and now in a nascent way in India, there is this great question of what in fact constitutes a global region. And I hope as we go along to talk a little about this question of regionality and the possibility of belonging to different coordinates. Uh, so, as you see, uh, you do not see, you see something else. Well, let that initial me. Uh, <laughs> I've called this presentation The Scale of Change, Mapping a New Atlas for, Contempor for Indian Art. And it's divided really into, a, uh, just put out a brief roadmap. It, it, it's divided into three sections. The first is called Contexts and Vectors, in which I talk a little about the last 15 or 20 years as a backdrop to what we see today. In, uh, in the cultural field in India, and talk a little about the politics that sustained or provoked some of these cultural uh, initiatives. I then want to shift scale a little, and in my second section, address what I think of as the transformation of the studio. In what ways has artistic practice changed in response to new, new availabilities and new possibilities? And in the third section, I dwell a little on the idea of co-producing the global contemporary. And I'll unpack that idea as I go along. And at the end, I hope to be able to share some of the, the works of five artists whose, whose work I admire greatly and uh, that I've been working with. And I'll try and divide between a very writerly sort of tonality and the more informal spoken tenor. The reason I go on and on with these preambles is because I'm truly nervous about launching off. But here we are. As, as Russell said, uh, global attention, uh, the global attention that contemporary Indian art has received in recent years has really been fixated, I would say, on the boom in the Indian art market, which itself was a resonance of the resurgent Indian economy. Uh, the recession, of course, more or less put paid to all of that and gave us repose to rethink some of these questions. But what I want to argue here is that the market was really only one dimension of the dramatic transition through which the subcontinental art situation has passed since the early 1990s. 
And of course, I, I, I agree, it is true that the market has transformed the lives of many Indian artists and opened up undreamt of opportunities for many of them in terms of experimentation with media and materials, in terms of production infrastructure, in terms of the expansion of consciousness that comes with travel, which many of them really began to open up to in these years, in the last 15 years. Paradoxically, though, the demands on many artists have increased to such an extent, thanks to market pressure, that it's affected their freedom to extend themselves in bold, new, formal, and conceptual directions. And meanwhile, some of the most expressively and conceptually stimulating artistic projects are being conducted outside the ambit of the market. I'm thinking particularly of projects that get staged in the richly productive gray zones of engagement, where a self-critical art practice bypasses the circuits of the gallery at the auction house to forge solidarities with other cultural and political practices. Under this latter rubric, the gray zones of engagement, I would place not only video and intermedia art, but also social projects and new media initiatives. Uh, initiatives that are really interfaces between image making, pedagogy, and activism. Also projects that are research-based and archival in orientation, and which really force us to rethink what it means to be an artist or to produce art, and what in fact is art, and why is it art? You know, these, are, these are really art projects that ask more questions than they provide epiphanies. And this tendency in contemporary Indian art is strongly represented by artists like Ravi Agarwal, who attends closely to the crises of ecological devastation, uh, Shilpa Gupta, who addresses the complex politics of prejudice and, and violence in the Indian subcontinent, also the Rux Media Collective, whose three members combine a commitment to dissent uh, and its defense with their articulation of very layered and complex narratives of place and belonging. Significantly, Agarwal and Rux were first presented in the context of international contemporary art by Okwe and Rezor in his Documenta 11, uh, eight years ago. And Shilpa Gupta, although she's based in India, received wide support and acclaim internationally long before she began to show her work at home systematically. All of this is not to argue that the more mainline practices of painting, photography, sculpture, and graphics are in decline. Quite the contrary. And personally, I find myself often caught between uh, old media and new media. In some sense, while I respond very strongly to new media and uh, in previous lives, I've also received technical instruction about some of these, you know, the, the scientific understructures of these things. My uh, passion, if you will, links me very strongly to the, to the old ways of making art. And I'm happy to say that on the Indian art scene, we have continuing testimony to the refinement and amplification of these forms, uh, with individual practitioners combining the expressive and the critical, the poetic and the political, in compelling and unpredictable ways. I'm thinking, for instance, of a printmaker like Zarina Hashmi, who is now in her 80s and lives in New York most of the time. She has produced and continues to produce wonderful work that reflects on the partition of India in 1947 and the crises of identity and belonging that this produced. I'm thinking also of photographers like Dayanita Singh, Sunil Gupta, and Sonia Jabbar, people who look I mean, who, who retain the poetic mandate but address vexed political issues. Dayanita Singh speaks of uh, a nation state in decline. Sunil Gupta 
talks from within of the, the homoerotic imagination. Sonia Jabbar addresses uh, political issues like Kashmir, which are not often discussed with uh, the sensitivity they deserve in India. I'm thinking also of painters like Atul Dodia, Nelly Gobai, Jitish Kalat. I know these are names, but the, the point that I'm making here is that what we have, and I'll come to this a little later, we have at least four generations of artists who are all productively at work, engaging, in, you know, engaging with the crises of the imagination. And all of these people revisit and interrogate questions of formal language and look closely at the sorts of cultural contexts that form their principal armature. And while these mainline practices are largely sustained by the gallery system, they now can also summon assistance, both in terms of conceptual repose and support for production, from the emergent infrastructures provided by residency programs, grant-making institutions, and foundations. And I'll unpack some of this a little later, because it has a certain political aspect, which I think would be of interest to some of you. So what I want to do here is to really reflect on some of the major aspects of this transition. And I'm writing as one who's participated intensely in the Indian art situation, uh, really now for about 21 years, as critic, as theorist, as curator, but also I would like to think as a friend of artists. I, I, it, it's, it's a very vexed, problematic, turbulent sort of place to be in, as, I, as I'm sure many of you know. Uh, how does one, I mean, how does, how does one act as a friend to artists is, a, is, as you know, a very, very difficult question. But I've played that role. I've collaborated on image-making projects, on discursive adventures, uh, collaborations of different kinds. And if I were to describe the changing ecology in which Indian art has developed during the last decade, I would identify the market boom as only one among four key vectors of change. And the other three are these. For one, the schisms and scissions within Indian political life, uh, changes within the nation state and within society, that's one. This has affected cultural expression in very definite ways. The second vector of change would be the availability of media and technologies of communication. Uh, and I'll follow some of that history through, the way in which media, new media became available at a, from a certain point onwards and what that permitted the imagination to do. And the third key vector of change for me is transcultural experiments in travel, in dialogue, and in collaboration. So you have the market as the most visible one, but there's also uh, changes in social and political life, there's the availability of new media, and there is the presence, the emergent presence of transcultural possibilities. And I have to say it was much easier to write about the 1990s in a certain way than it is about today, because the 90s had some very, very clear political coordinates by which to navigate. Uh, the Nehruvian consensus on, on the nation had clearly broken down. Uh, the utopian phase of the republic was clearly over. And with the destruction of the Barbary Masjid in Ayodhya in 1992, the entire decade of the 90s was really colored by the questions and crises that came out of that. Because that was an attack on the foundational character of the Republic, which as you know was inclusive, uh, trans-ethnic, trans-religious. And this, this attack on the core values of the Republic from the Hindu right wing really uh, determined the shape of our debates through the 1990s. But these last 10 years, the first decade of the 21st century, 
has not witnessed any such dramatic and cataclysmic event. I mean, there have been a lot of low-intensity turbulences. Um, but the key sort of issues are that we now have an advanced national level of prosperity for a few people, but for the multitudes, there is still a constant battle to achieve even subsistence level uh, food availability. There also is what can only be described as a civil war in progress in central India, in the old tribal heartlands between uh, Maoist insurrectionary forces and the state. And although the ascendancy of the Hindu right-wing party was broken electorally in 2004, the public sphere remains sharply polarized. There is very much the, uh, the presence of an aggressive hyper-nationalism. And there is also the presence of assertive subnational movements and mass mobilizations by the formerly lower castes, the castes formerly um, seen to be beyond the pale of, um, of caste society. And India's religious and ethnic minorities face the dilemma of looking inward to embrace communitarian values or looking outwards to play their role as citizens of a modern nation state. And there is, of course, the phenomenon that I like to think of as competitive populism. Because every political force now caters to extreme opinion. There is a gradual right, rightward turn even on the part of the centrist and the leftist parties. And what this has really done is to transform the tenor of public life. And in the cultural field, we feel this very, very strongly. Visual artists in particular, because somehow visuality seems to be an enormous challenge in a way that the written word is not always, for some reason, a challenge in India. And I'm thinking in particular of a very high-profile case where M.F. Hussain, who's now in his mid-90s, belongs to the first generation of post-colonial Indian artists, has had to live in exile for the last few years. He lives between uh, the UK and the Arab Emirates. And uh, you know, this is an improbable example of a major national figure who has to live in exile because of the constant threats that he faces from the Hindu right wing. At the same time, many artists have wrested opportunity from catastrophe. They've been prompted by this situation to mobilize alliances with writers, with cultural activists, and to organize platforms of resistance against censorship and against this emergent illiberalism. I'm thinking in particular of platforms like Sahmat, which, which uh, continues to flourish against the odds, but also a whole series of temporary alliances, often reactive, but which are nonetheless uh, codifying themselves. So this is, this is to really unpack the whole question of social and political crisis. I now move to the way in which Indian artists gradually found themselves in possession of newly available technologies of imaging and communication from the late 1990s onwards. The advent of advanced video technology, the internet, graphic interfaces, virtual reality software, and other kinds of digital retrieval systems has amplified the scope of artistic production. It's also, crucially, transformed the nature of artistic production. For many artists, the work of art has now been rendered unstable, versional, reprogrammable and open-ended. You know, the artwork is for many artists now no longer the irreducible summation of a process. It's more like a provisional statement of a process. The work is constantly, you know, it's, it's like a series of log entries. It's not a destination. And I'll, I'll say a little more about that over the, over the images as we go along. And I come now to the third of the vectors, which was this question of transcultural possibilities. 
The globalization era potential of the Indian art world was most productively realized in a range of transcultural experiments and dialogue, encounter, and travel that also began in the late 90s. I'm thinking in particular of the work done by agencies like the Japan Foundation, the Goethe Institute, the Triangle Arts Trust, the Prince Klaus Fund, who underwrote these experiments through which Indian artists, but also critics, theorists, and curators benefited enormously from meetings with colleagues in other kinds of situations, from residencies, conferences, and collaborations. And there was really a, quite a marvelous cross-fertilization of ideas during these exchanges. Of course, we should keep in mind, and I think this will resonate with some of you, that this particular movement in the direction of the transcultural came out of a shift in, if you like, the world order. I mean, we moved in those years from, I mean, the Cold War, of course, and all its structures and scenarios gradually vanished over these years. And the, a, a new sort of world order came into, came into being where there were various nation states that were asserting their soft power presence. So in, in certain ways, Australia certainly did, Japan did. In many ways, I would like to contextualize also the uh, Asia-Pacific Triennial and the kind of effect it had in Indian art in terms of uh, focus outside of the country. I think the APT, the work of the Japan Foundation, and the Prince Klaus Fund particularly seem to articulate what might be called soft power initiatives, whether by Japan, by Australia, or the Netherlands. And that is, is, is a productive way of looking at what happened, uh, the, looking at uh, mapping the transition. But really the most revolutionary outcome of these transcultural experiments was the shift in paradigm and perspective for an entire generation of Indian artists. Because they were suddenly able to abandon the old colonial model of, uh, of knowledge and, and of power and how the world works. Because for, for earlier generations, it was always this mythic West, which was the donor, and it was the non-West that was the recipient of contemporary culture. You know, art and culture always got produced elsewhere, and you received, internalized, and assimilated it. You, know, you were, in some sense, a permanent apprentice. That changed completely. And uh, instead, you had uh, relationships that came out of lattices and uh, unpre unpredictable encounters. So in many ways, younger Indian artists are now able to leave behind them the syndromes of belatedness, imitation, permanent apprenticeship. Instead, many Indian artists now begin to see the world, correctly, I think, as an assembly of multiple improvisational modernisms. There is no single... Um, I think it was Alfred Barr's vision of modern art, wasn't it? That it was a torpedo constantly moving out from a starting point in the 1890s. But we now see that the world is actually a series of uh, regional modernisms that are uh, innovated and improvised and worked through, depending on where you are. And what you see, therefore, now is a vision of the world as a conversation among regional contemporaries. How am I doing for time? I should now move quickly over the transformation of the studio. Because I want to bring some of these thoughts to bear on how it is that artists actually do what they do now. The locus of the studio has changed so completely that, as I say, when you now do studio visits, you're astonished at how greatly things have changed over the last 10 years even. Typically, in, even in the mid-90s, the studio was really a space for the artists created out of you know, his or her own home, or it was a rented apartment close to where they lived. Or in certain cities, there were studio complexes that, that the state would provide. 
like the Gadi Studios in Delhi or Cholamandal near Chennai in the south. And typically, while painters tend to work in isolation, sculptors found it necessary to work with a modest team of assistants. Now, with all of these technological changes and transcultural encounters, this situation has completely been transformed. So studios now are more typically spaces calibrated somewhere between the laboratory and the factory. And in some cases, work has actually been departmentalized and delegated among assistants, if you will. So the scale of, the scale of making, the scale of artistic production, is now extremely diverse. And you know, for some kinds of artists, like Ashok Sukumaran, the studio is portable, it's virtual, it's tactically mobile. And I like to joke that you know, his studio is often no larger than his laptop. He opens it up with, in airport lounges or wherever he is in residency, and the work gets done that way. Uh, often the studio has no materiality beyond an exchange of drafts and diagrams over email. And, and on the other hand, there are artists like Krishnamachari Bose and Riaz Komu who actually work on the model of the factory. There is a constant set of parallel productions going on where they might be working on sculpture or architectural commissions or indeed even on painting. At the same time, for artists like Shaina Anand, the studio is the vastest possible space. It's public space that becomes the studio. You have artists who tune into social relationships, trace the contours of uh, political asymmetries in questions of access to sidewalks or hydrants or electricity, and they map the invisible metropolitan architecture of power that's built around networks like this. So if the studio is as small and as portable as the laptop, sometimes it's as, it's as large as the city or the province. And I'd like to make a, a sort of typology of the economies of making in which Indian artists now work. I think of some of them as working through a, a process of distribution and others through delegation. By distribution, I mean a participatory process of art making that is fundamentally democratizing and transformative, that empowers all its participants with information and skills and a potential autonomy, and that activates an audience. I'm thinking in particular of an initiative called Cyber Mohalla, initiated by the academic platform Sarai in the shanty towns of Delhi, where they've worked with, uh, well, when it began, they, they began to work with children who lived in these shanty towns. And over a decade, uh, through close collaboration, each of these partners has transformed the other in some sense. And the general level of empowerment has, uh, on both sides, for the activists as well as, as, as these children who've now grown up, there's been a great opening up of consciousness. I'm thinking also of uh, an initiative called Periphery, which is Peri and F-E-R-R-Y, which takes place on a barge in, on, on the river Brahmaputra in Guwahati in northeastern India, which as some of you might know is, is, has, has been insurrectionary for about four decades. But in the middle of all that turbulence, you have this, this art, arts project where critical activity and artistic production and activism all fold into one another. And really, efforts are made in each of these platforms to convene a new and engaged audience from across social classes. And that, to me, is of great interest, because typically, and for a long time, art practice in India has been thought to be the preserve of the few. And in some of these experiments, you really find uh, the possibilities of democratization. And delegation, on the other hand, I shouldn't labor that point. I've already dwelt a little on it. Uh, the economy of delegation in art really has to do with 
picking up on an impulse in mid-20th century sculpture, where pra the practice itself uh, uh, sort of imposes a certain industrialization of, 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 of production. So that what you have is artworks that are delivered through large teams and essentially through what might be called assembly lines. And I find that of interest as well. It's not a value judgment that I make. It's just interesting to see that various kinds of cultural stimulations can come about even if the process itself is something that we would recognize as industrial. And I come now to the last, the third section of this presentation, which I call co-producing the global contemporary. For many decades, between the 1950s and the 1990s, Indian artists saw themselves, as I said, as apprentices or understudies to an international art system that was fundamentally and inviolably Euro-American. Uh, and of course, they saw themselves as visitors who would never be asked to sit down at the high table. They shared the syndrome with all other post-colonial subjectivities, whether from Nigeria, Egypt, the Philippines, the Caribbean. And I have to say, with, with a sense of shock, arriving here, I realized it's also true of a certain generation of Australian and New Zealand artists. You see the same kind of sense of leading a life that is fundamentally elsewhere, where the action is somewhere else and you need to connect with it in some way. But I think for all of us, this has changed completely, especially with the advent of the internet and the strengthening of the global Biennale or biennial system, as well as with the rise of a new generation in every post-colonial society. The new generations, as you know, really do not share many of these inhibitions and self-debilitations of previous decades. Not only has the high table lost some of its prestige, but it now takes its place in a room where, as I like to say, numerous other tables have asserted their own realms. The nature of the global contemporary has changed radically, with a clear recognition that the colonial asymmetries of power and knowledge mask histories of complicity and repression, histories that are really entangled in far more complicated ways than we imagine, and that the fortunes of people thought to be mutually remote are in fact closely connected. And this is where I would invoke the butterfly effect, which ensures our mutual interrelationship, whether through collaboration or through catastrophe on this spaceship that we live on. Increasingly, therefore, many Indian artists realize that they are active participants in defining and constructing the global contemporary. I use this term global contemporary to designate the presence as a predicament, which must be addressed creatively and innovated around. Indeed, the global contemporary is not legislated and exported across the planet from Western Europe and North America any longer. It now proceeds from highly differentiated starting points, from vigorous theaters of the now being staged in Abidjan or Buenos Aires, in Jakarta or Rabat or Beirut, in Seville or Manila or Ljubljana. The contemporary is a series of entanglements among diverse histories of political struggle, cultural vision, and artistic exploration. In this context, too, the Indian art situation offers an extraordinary traversal of choices and temporalities. We find, for instance, as I said earlier, four generations of artists who are active. Some of them, and this is why I speak of mapping a new atlas by which to map this particular art and the regional modernity it emerges from. We still have people who are working critically with ideas they inherited as very young people from the schools of Paris and New York. On the other hand, you have people who are deconstructing 
official discourses of information, people who are critiquing the war against terror. You have artists who look very closely at questions of torture, surveillance, migration, and genocide. And at the same time, you have people who are happy to work with deeply allegorical investigations of the self. And if you like, these kinds of internal entanglements among generations and ideas of art in India, these entanglements actually reflect what, what is going on everywhere in the world. Because these entanglements, and I've somewhere else, elsewhere described them as forming continents of affinity, record our own transition from one kind of cartography to another. I mean, many of us probably started off inheriting cartographies determined by nationalism over the Cold War. And we find in our own life and work that these cartographies are being unmade and turned into something else. And it's interesting that artistic projects, as well as curatorial and theoretical frameworks, and I have to say many of these emerging from India, have really addressed these questions in, in considerable detail. I'm thinking not only about the post-colonial thinkers, whether Spivak or Baba or Rakil Bilgrami or Apagarai, but I'm thinking also of, of a new generation of emerging uh, researchers and scholars who attend to these questions. Correspondingly, therefore, the rubrics of debate have changed for us at home. Certainly the tedious themes that dominated a lot of discourse in India have been swept aside completely. The anxiety of national identity, which tended to get phrased in the form of specious binaries, like Indianness versus internationalism, or tradition versus modernity. I can't imagine why anybody would ever think of tradition as, as some kind of viable category. Tradition is really always a special form of modernity. But then these were the specious binaries that people tended to commit themselves to. Now, all of this has somehow fortunately receded. The, the chimera, if you like, of authenticity to be secured as the guarantee of an embattled local against an overwhelming global has been swept away. And I'd like to speculate that the vacuum left behind by this lapsed and unproductive rhetoric will be filled by the awareness that, in many ways, transcultural experience is the only certain basis of contemporary artistic practice. I've been pilloried for saying that elsewhere, but I do, in fact, think that transcultural experience in the sense of an amplification of your selfhood is really uh, the only way in which you can hope to expand your work whether as an artist or a critic or a theorist. And by this I don't mean only that one must travel, because the world is, to, I mean, this sounds completely bizarre, the world is everywhere. And that realization can transform you even if you do not travel constantly on the biennial circuit. And as uh, Nancy, who's here, as a cultural theorist, Nancy Adjania and I have argued elsewhere in the paper, transcultural experience and the corresponding stance of what we call critical transregionality gives the cultural practitioner a certain strategic and imaginative freedom. It gives the cultural practitioner the freedom to link regions on the basis of elective affinities that arise from common cultural predicaments, from jointly faced crises, and from shared choices of practice. Not inherited ethnic narratives, not stories about race, religion, or uh, even a colonial past necessarily, but just the appreciation that the way in which our interrelated experience produces our subjectivity can link us in the most unexpected ways. This is not a means for us of escaping the urgencies of the globalized local. Rather, we would argue, it sustains a responsible 
and responsive encounter with the contemporary in all its manifold connotations. I would probably now want to rush through in this. How do we Uh, I'm going to just whiz you through the work of five artists who I've worked with and whose work I really admire. I'm going to begin with Pranit Soy, who lives between uh, Calcutta, Delhi, and Amsterdam, lives mainly in Amsterdam, really. Uh, this was shown in the 7th Kuala Biennale, and some of it is, uh, not this, but other work by him, is uh, actually right now on display in Adelaide, in the Contemporary Art Center, as part of the festival. Now, I'm absolutely sure I'm going to do something incredibly wrong. Do I simply press this? This is a series called Disasters of War, in which, of course, the reference is to Goya and to the turbulence of Goya's times and ours. And Pranit dwells on the horrors that we've seen in the last decade, on Abu Ghraib, on the unfolding war in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Somalia, and elsewhere. And he very deliberately uses the form of the miniature. So again, it allows me to dwell a little on the trope of scale, that political awareness does not necessarily have, have to emerge through epic engagements. Sometimes a very, very small work can be civilizing. Some of these images come out as newspaper photographs or from documentaries. Some of them have to do with Mujahid attacks, or as in this case, Uttalban executions. Also, the bombings in Madrid and London, in Kabul, and more recently in Bombay. Continuities. This, the next few images, the next six images, are the work of Nikhil Chopra. Nikhil was in the in the Venice Biennale last year, among other venues. And he lives essentially in Bombay and uh, does a mix of performance and photography and drawing. He's not really a VP, yeah? um, And actually, through the modes of masquerade, if you like, or camouflage or through the trope of possession, he transports himself into other kinds of experiences, sometimes as, <laughs> here he plays the queen, if you like, but he also more often impersonates his grandfather, who was a landowner and, and an amateur artist. And so it's a, it's a way of working himself through to other ways of seeing the world, both as an aesthetic project and as a way of looking at the politics of feudalism. Typically he has these intense Preparations that sometimes think they're almost yogic in their in their precision and the demand they make on him. He locks himself up in a project space or a library space, and then it's uh, it's an exercise that unfolds in time. Sometimes it's 24 hours, three days, or sometimes a week too. So the performance typically is uh, his, if you like, impersonation or the possession of the artist's self by someone else. And he has an aperture that connects him to the environment, so he also draws what, what he cannot see, what he's surrounded by that cannot see. So it's a feat of in 
the audience, and it's also a way of trying to push the subjectivity to uh, forms of experience that are not normally available to it through, as I say, this kind of um, some of an artistic exercise. I move now to the work of Nakaraj Sharma, who's a painter, but more typically now a sculptor, maker of installations, who's dwelt a great deal on the cult of war in recent works. This is a set of sculptures. This is actually a sculpture called Air Show, which has been, uh, it has been shown in India, but seems to have actually an afterlife traveling across Europe in various contexts. This actually emerged from drawing. A lot of the sculptures uh, emerged from drawings he'd made over the years when there was no funding to make sculpture on the sort of epic scale that he really wanted to. And in the air show, he meditates really both on how fascinating it is, it was for someone like him to go up looking at planes, but also at the constant rhetoric of war in South Asia, typically between India and Pakistan, that we've all now got used to accepting as part of our normality. Which of course doesn't stop him from also using the artwork as a platform to think about Saul Levitt or Kathleen or, or Eiffel or a whole range of personae who occupy his imagination. The next few images are from a or actually of a work called Solarum by Bharti K. Bharti again is sort of one of these early transcultural figures. He's born in Britain and came back to India at a certain point. No, came to India, I mean, <laughs> why did she come back? She's British. But she came to India and uh, uh, sort of made a life for herself in the Indian art context. Actually contributed in many ways to many of these developments that I've talked about. And Solarum is a fiberglass work. It's part of a set of work where she was looking at impossibility conditions. What does the heart of a whale look like? What can this tree with its thousand heads be speaking to us of questions like that. And each of these heads is a gargoyle or a gnome or a demon. And a lot of Bharti's work has to do with this next question of how to balance between beauty and terror. And I'll close with the work of Gardi Raina, who lives in Baroda, and who, for various complex personal and other reasons, has been reflecting on the subject of Kashmir, on migration, on forced migration, and multiple diaspora. So this is a work called Huzum, which in Urdu means um, madness or hysteria. It's one of these untranslatable words that, because she's not only lived, because she's a Kashmiri pundit, Hindu from Kashmir, but whose parents migrated, uh, whose people migrated centuries ago out of Kashmir. Uh, as she was growing up, there was this constant sense of preoccupation with the homeland that is not quite one's homeland. And on a personal note, I have to say that since I'm also part of this Kashmiri diaspora, uh, it's, it's something that resonates very strongly for me. How do you reclaim a lost homeland? How do you make its current currencies your own? So a lot of her work now has taken the form of reflecting, it's an extended reflection on the low intensity warfare, the insurrection, the state oppression that prevails in, in Kashmir. 
But this, of course, is, is in that sense relatively more classical in the way in which it combines this sound object sculpture with wood and cloth and puts one in mind of tropes of betrayal and you know, violent change. This is called a scattering. And zafran, as you see, zafran is the Kashmiri word for saffron. So it and it and it's 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 made in blood. So which at one level is a very melodramatic device that uh, was beloved of the Urdu poets particularly. Writing in your blood was a metaphor for speaking your most intense feelings. But it, there's also a connection with saffron, which is so identified with Kashmir and speaks of beauty and a certain cuisine and the way of life. But there's also this notion of the spilling of blood, of diaspora, of the scattering of the seeds. And the next few images are from a site-specific installation that she did during a workshop with a transnational platform called Code. And this was in, in, the, in the basement of a, of a house in Srinagar, which is the capital of Kashmir. It's called Tarkhana, which again is the Urdu for cell. Um, and uh, it's a pity that you need light to make photographs with, as our colleague up there knows only too well. But um, it takes away from the incredible darkness of this uh, installation. Because when you went in, you, uh, uh, Garvey only gave you a very small torch. And typically, you tend to stumble over the things that you found in there. And that was part of how it, how it worked. So there's this, uh, it's really a series of details. It's a kind of archive in the making. That's the form it takes. So there are. Uh, there's a reference there to a certain sort of Buddhist wayside shrine made with a pile of stones. There's also a portrait of the woman who was actually the care caretaker uh, of this house. Um, and, as, and this again is really a, a very small detail, but there's a, a tragic narrative around it. This is an ornament called an aperu, which Kashmiri Hindu women wear. But there's a whole generation of, because the Hindus have now been more or less forced out of Kashmir uh, from. Uh, 1994 onwards. There's a whole generation of Muslims who've grown up in Kashmir uh, who don't know what a Hindu looks like, who have no notion of what it is that Hindus wear, the defining marks, and so forth. So there was a series of strange encounters that Gardhi had when she went back and worked in Kashmir. Uh, in some sense, she found that while the older generation, of course, shared a certain culture, there was now this new generation, which also was, in many ways, uh, crucially, had had its consciousness shaped by narratives of global jihad, among other things, but which also insisted, correctly, I think, on the need for autonomy in that region. And it got mediated, these, these political questions didn't get mediated necessarily through everyday discussion. They got mediated through very small details like this. When you have, some, when you have a child who doesn't know something that used to be an integral part of, of, of his or her culture, not 20 years ago. And that's another detail from, from the same institution. This again is actually the work of a Sherbite or Hindu uh, mystic poet, a woman called Lala, who lived and worked in the 14th century. But it's written in the Persil Arabic script. So Garbi is also looking, has been looking in various ways at ways in which we can bridge across these differences that so horribly threaten both Kashmir and the larger republic. And I'll close with this image because this is really a set of newspaper photographs of uh, what I simply call the missing in Kashmir. 
it's young men who get pulled out and taken away by security forces and are never heard from again. So it's a crucial term in Hindi inspiration where you suddenly, with your torchlight, come upon these faded portraits from newspapers, which in many cases are the only pictures that their families have of them. These are people who will never be heard from again. But we need to listen to these and to many of the other stories that these artists are talking to us about, because they invite us really to consider the shaping urgencies, if you will, of Salvation. And I think that there are narratives there which could be, could be productively engaged with by people elsewhere in the world. Thank you for your attention. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.